0: Good morning, welcome to Green Tree Community Church. My name is Tom Ricks and I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. Glad to have you worshiping with us this morning. Uh, Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're continuing our study. Uh, I had a week study break, not week like um, bad, but week like a week, seven days. Um, And I got a chance to really kind of play this thing out. I think we're going to be done by the end of June of 2012 with Romans. That's the the pace we're on right now. So we're going to look at some of the middle verses in Romans chapter 9 this morning. So you can turn there in your Bibles. The verses will be on the screen. Ryan Snodgrass is a guy who lives outside of Denver, Colorado and is a river rafting guide. He's owned his own river rafting business for uh, many years. And last summer, summer 2010, he was on uh, one of the rivers in Colorado and he had finished up with his group, and they had gotten all their passengers, all their customers to shore and had unloaded them when uh, an announcement came over the radio that downstream from them, about a half mile, there was uh, an overturned raft. There had been a, a problem, and uh, there was a 13-year-old girl who was stranded uh, upstream from where the raft had overturned, and she was out in the middle by herself, and she was in serious jeopardy. She needed some, some real help. The authorities had been called. They were on their way. Uh, Snodgrass and a couple of his buddies, because they know the river really well, they've done this for years and years, they're experts, they hop in one of the rafts and they head downstream. And they come upon this young girl, and it, it takes them a little while, but they uh, get some ropes and tie some ropes together, and one of the guys wades out, and they're able to get a life jacket around her and bring her back to shore, and she's saved, and she's reunited with her parents, and they all live happily ever after, right? So Snodgrass comes to the, to the shore, he gets out of the water, he's the guy who risked his life to go in after this young woman. And he's met by the sheriff, the county sheriff there on the river. And he's not patted on the back. He's not given a big hug. He's not thanked. He's given a citation. He got a ticket for obstructing a government operation. (laughs) In other words, he didn't let the sheriff do his job. He just went ahead and saved this young girl's life. Have you ever heard of the term, no good deed goes unpunished? And here's a guy who, who, obviously, he's the best person for the job, but he risks his life to go and, and help save this young woman. And the thanks he gets is six hours in jail until he can post $750 bond, and then he has to pay this citation. No good deed goes unpunished. Well, if, if you're at all in tune with what we're, uh, what we're doing here this morning and you've looked at the screen and you're not making your grocery list for next week, you've noticed that we have an odd title for the sermon. Who is to blame for man's salvation? By man, I don't mean men, I mean mankind. Who's to blame? You say blame is an odd word, Tom. Wouldn't you say who gets the credit for man's salvation? Wouldn't you say who, who do we thank for man's salvation? But in Romans chapter 9, which is all about the sovereign mercy of God. And J.B.'s done a wonderful job the last three weeks in laying all this out. He was a little bit of a chicken that he stopped before these verses this morning, but that's okay. Um, not really at all. He, he, it was, I listened to that sermon for last Sunday. It was masterful. In these verses, which talk about the sovereign mercy of God and His grace and His compassion, some find fault with God's plan. Some look at at what God has done and that God is in control of his redemptive work, that he is working his plan of salvation, and they question his character. And it's like no good deed goes unpunished. God, I don't know that I wanted you to save in that particular way. I think there's something wrong with your character, and I'm going to, as a man, as a person, as a human, I'm going to sit in judgment of what you've done. And Paul anticipates that question, which is not really a question at all. It's a statement of the heart. Paul anticipates the objection, and he deals with it very directly in the verses that we're going to look at this morning. Paul understands that that as someone finds fault with God's authority over grace, and they seek to use that to vindicate their rejection as sensible and insightful, he understands that, that that's an unfounded criticism. And it's not the pinnacle of human reasoning. It's actually a missed opportunity at understanding the grace of God. So Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 24, hear the word of God. Paul's been talking about the sovereign mercy of God, and in anticipating a a rebuttal, Paul says, You will then say, why does he, God, find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, in order to make the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we have sung of your praise and your worship. We have proclaimed that that we are a friend of God, and, and we are a friend of God not because of any action that we have taken, but rather because you are gracious and you are merciful and you are compassionate to those who are lost and broken. Father, that we would question your grace, that we would question your motives, that we would, that we would insinuate that you are unfair. That, that you are unkind, and in fact that you really, in some respects, are a monster in the way that you've gone about your work of salvation it is difficult to think about, but very true in many of our hearts, even for those of us who call ourselves believers. We struggle at times with your sovereignty with your power over all of your creation including your salvation lord we are tempted even even those of us who have known you for a long long time we're tempted to want to be god ourselves. and so father paul rightly challenges our thinking this morning and he rightly calls us to examine the facts for what they are and to look at ourselves in light of your beauty and your majesty and your splendor and to truly understand what you have done as a gracious god Father, I cannot do justice to this passage. These are very difficult verses. They have often been misrepresented. They've often been used as a club to to beat people into submission. And Lord, I pray that you would guard this congregation against my uh, frail thinking. Lord, forgive my sin. Don't let me stand in the way. We pray that your spirit, your truth, would ring ring and reign in our hearts this morning that you would comfort us with these words, that you would challenge us with these words, that you would correct us with these words, because these words are are your truth to all those who call upon the name of the Lord. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come and that you would be our teacher. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, who's to blame for man's salvation? We're going to kind of play with this for a little while uh, and consider this question from a couple of different angles based on what Paul says in the verses that are before us this morning. So in verse 19, Paul says, you'll say to me then, you know, somebody out there who's listening to me write and to preach and to talk about God's sovereign control, his authority over his, his plan of salvation for mankind, and you'll say, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Now, Paul is, is unearthing an attitude uh, among those who are listening to the gospel message. And to put the question maybe in a little more of a modern day context, one of us might say, well, why does God save in such a manner? Why does why God um, seem to be in control over all? so seems to take away from some of my dignity to, to make my own decisions for myself? Uh, another aspect of this might be a thinking, how can God hold me accountable for my choices if he already has a plan? And so the, these two questions at the beginning of verse 19, why does God still find fault? Who, who can resist his will? If, if he has a plan for salvation and, and he's purposely working it out, then how can I possibly be responsible for my decisions? In other words, what, what this line of thinking is, it's not so much a question as it is a statement. And the statement is, I don't like the plan. I don't like the guy in charge. I want to be in control. I would be a better God than God. In fact, that's how I 'm going to approach my life. I 'm going to approach my life by saying I am going to be in control. Now say, Tom, you're reading an awful lot into those questions and I and I would humbly suggest that, that that's exactly what Paul is saying. He's challenging us on our pride. he's challenging us on our assumption. That we, as as human beings, as men and women, boys and girls, with the limited life experience we have in this universe, not to mention all the other universes, that we could actually question the character of the one who calls himself our Savior. Paul's not saying here that the question doesn't have an answer Paul, in fact, Paul ignores that part. He he isn't saying that that God doesn't give us an answer to this. He's not even going to to address that. There there are answers for this. But Paul doesn't go down that road. Paul says the question's flawed. And the question is flawed not because what's in the question, but because of who asks. Look at what he says in the first part of verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? The question is flawed, not because it doesn't have an answer, but because of who is asking. So let's stop there for a second and think about this. Who asked that question? Well, I would raise my hand and say there's a point in my life when I ask the question. There's probably a point in all of our lives when we've questioned the character of God, where we've maybe thought his motives were less than pure. Maybe some of us thought about that in terms of salvation. Maybe some of us have thought about that in other situations or circumstances in our lives. But we, but we all probably at one moment or another have said, wait a minute, I'm not sure that, that God's going about this the right way. And there may be some here this morning that, that haven't been in a relationship with God, and you're like, yeah, I got a lot of questions. Look at the world around me. There, there seem to be some real serious problems here. And not setting that aside, but also understanding what is the character of mankind. Who are we as we ask this question? Are we the enlightened, all knowing ones? Do we have every piece of information in the entire universe? Are we a friend of God? Are we coming at God with this question saying, I know what you're doing is good and gracious and right. I just need some more understanding. Or are we coming at God in an accusatory manner? I would suggest that it's the former rather than, or the latter rather than the former. That we're saying, God, there's something wrong with you. Why do we ask that question? Why do we accuse God? Well, if you go back to Romans chapter five, and I'm not going to read the verses, but I want to put up for you on the board the terms that Paul uses to identify mankind right here in the middle of the screen. The first thing he says is that we're weak. And by that, he means we do not have the ability to engage with God on a significant level that would bring about our own salvation. You can't save yourself and I can't save myself. I do not have the wherewithal. I do not have the power to turn away from the wrong that I am doing and embrace what God has called me to and work out or earn my own salvation. In fact, Paul says, secondly, that I'm not even interested in doing that. He calls us ungodly. And ungodly is not a moral condition so much as it is a condition of the mind. I don't even have the vaguest interest in being in a relationship with God. Now, that leads to moral decisions, but it's the foundational principle of being ungodly. You know, you might look at somebody and say, oh, look at the way they're behaving. They're ungodly. What we're saying, what Paul's saying here is that you're ungodly in the sense that you say, I don't have a use for God. I don't have a need for God. I don't want to be in a relationship with God. He's of no importance to me. I'll take care of things myself. Weak, ungodly, and then Paul says, we're sinners. A sinner is a person who falls short of what is expected. So, you go back, do something, a simple exercise, go back to the Ten Commandments. Never take the name of the Lord in vain. Anybody here ever cuss, use the Lord's name in vain? I would have to admit that I've done that. Always honor the Sabbath day. I would admit that I I have worked seven days a week and have ignored taking my day of rest, right? Always honor your father and your mother. Everybody obey their parents perfectly growing up. You know. I can't look at my kids and say, obey me the way I obeyed my mom and dad. She's sitting right there. She'd stand up and call down fire from heaven. We'd be all done here in a real, real quick moment. Right? We've all been disobedient. Never lie. I've told lies. Never steal. I've taken things that aren't mine. You go to the simple list of the Ten Commandments and we fail miserably. We don't live up to even the bare minimum. When Jesus was talking to his disciples in Luke 17, Jesus tells them they should always forgive their brother. They should always uh, be accountable for their own sin. They should always offer grace and mercy. And the disciples say, we can't even do that. And Jesus says, well, that's a problem because when you do the bare minimum, you should say we're really wicked servants because we have, we've only done what's the, the least that's expected. We cannot live up, we're sinners. And then Paul explains to us this. While we were still God's enemies... Christ died for us. So Paul says, if you want to engage with the question, let's ask who's bringing the topic up. And who's bringing the topic up is not in my heart of hearts when this topic comes up. It's not because I have pure motives. It's not because I love God and just want to make sure his name is glorified. It's because I believe that I can sit in judgment of the King and the Lord of all of creation. And so Calvin points it out rightly when he says, there is a madness in the human mind to charge God with unrighteousness, with unfairness, with sinful behavior, with, with evil intent than rather to blame itself for blindness. Calvin says if we would just look in the mirror, we would see the truth, the questions flawed because the character behind the question is broken. He goes on to give an example of this in the second half of verse 20 and in verse 21 when he, he brings kind of t- just an example of everyday life. Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? He's talking about a potter, right? Who's throwing a jar, making some kind of uh, clay pot. Does the potter not have the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? In other words, the, Paul is illustrating his point with an absurd notion that what is created, the piece of art, is actually held in higher honor than the artist who created it. And to to give you a quick quote from a 20th century commentator on this passage, Roy Harrisfield was a great Lutheran theologian. He said the rhetorical questions reflect incredulity that the artist should be thought of as inferior to his material. It makes no sense to to look at a piece of art and, and to think that the art is more important than the one who created it. You have to look at the character of the artist to understand art. I want to put a, a, a picture up on the uh, screen for you that I think is a very artistic picture. I guess absolutely beautiful. This was taken a, uh, about a week or so ago, and it was taken in the Hawaiian Islands by a person who was just walking down the street who has a very artistic flair about her, and she happened to see this rainbow in the sky and, and began to snap some pictures. I would say that is an absolutely artistic type of picture. It's absolutely beautiful. That same person about 11 11 years ago made this. The person who took that picture actually made, and it has a top, but I was afraid I would lose it or drop it and break it, so I left it behind. But they actually made this clay box in that art room right over there at North Kirkwood Middle School, right here. They made it. And on the front, there's a little ichthus. That is a symbol of the Christian faith. And on either end of the box, which actually kind of looks a little bit like a coffin, which makes me <laughs> nervous. But anyway, on, the, on I just now thought of that. <laughs> um, there's a cross at either end, which obviously sim- signifies Christ and his death for us, uh, nat- atoning death for us. Now, if you look at this and you look at the picture, you know, this guy maybe kind of comes in, in second place maybe. What's that? You, what? You want to be the picture instead of... No, you can't be the picture. You're the box. You have to say, what? What do you mean you don't like being the box? You sit on my desk. It's a lovely place. You hold all my change. Why can you, Okay, now you're going, we need to take Tom to the home and put him in a chair and <laughs> throw an Afghan over him. He's lost his mind. The, the, the box wasn't talking to me, right? It's just making a point. Is it the artist or is it the art? These are both made... The picture was taken by my daughter, Katie, and the box was made by my daughter, Katie, as a gift for her father, Right? They both have significance on some level, but it's the artist who makes the determination. And Paul says when we don't understand that, it's like the container complaining that it can't be the photograph. You would say, Tom, that's insane. Exactly. For us to suggest as we're the ones who have been created to sit in judgment of God as finite people, with little knowledge of the vastness in all of creation, much less the vastness of the mind of God, and to question the motives of the Lord of glory, smacks of insanity. I want to take you back to Job for just a minute. I'm not going to put these verses on the board, but I'm going to read several of them to you. Job was a phenomenal guy. In fact, if you look at the beginning passages of Job, God congratulates him for for being a pretty impressive guy. He was known in his town and in his community for a guy who was flawless, who, who did all the right things. He was very wealthy. He was a good businessman. He took care of his family. He had, he had homes for his children. He had grown children. They all, they all loved and adored him. He had a wonderful wife. Everything was going for Job. And one day, it all came crashing down. And Job loses all of his belongings. And he loses his homes. And he loses his children. They're killed in a storm. And he loses his own health. And he's he's beginning to lose his mind. When we find Job uh, into the story a bit, when all this has happened, he's sitting on a garbage dump. And he's got a piece of wood and he's scraping the boils on his body. He has lost everything. And his wife looks at him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Job has three friends who show up. They're called Job's comforters. They see their friend Job, who they've known for years and years and years, and they're so dumbstruck by his condition, they sit down with him in the garbage dump and don't say anything for three days. They're so overwhelmed with what's happened. And they begin to talk to Job, and they say, Job, you've obviously done something wrong. And Job says, I refuse to believe that, and I want God to come here and give me an answer. I've done everything right. I've done what's expected. I want God to explain to me why this has happened. So the Lord shows up, and I'm not going to read you all of it, but just a a couple of sections of the latter uh, chapters in Job. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, and I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid the cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut up the seas with doors? When it burst forth from the womb, when I made clouds its garments, and thick darkness' its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began, and caused the dawn to know its place? Then he goes on to share some more questions with Job. And in verse chapter 40, The Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? See, Job has found fault with God. He who argues with God, let him answer for it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further." Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and he said, dress for action like a man and I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So that's a pretty harsh rebuke. It is a pretty harsh rebuke, no question about it. But it's an honest rebuke and it is a loving rebuke because God's plan is a plan of redemption. Chapter 9 of Romans is not about the wrath of God, it is about the mercy of God. And when we sit in our lofty perch and condemn God for his mercy, He has every right to call us into question. When he finished this conversation with Job, it's interesting that Job said, I've heard about you, but now I've come face to face with you. And I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Job hadn't been healed at that point. He hadn't had his fortunes restored. He hadn't had a new house built for him. He didn't have new children yet. All that was going to happen. But Job said, if I die right now, I admit that I am wrong and God is perfect. That He is the merciful one. And that my finding fault with Him is utter sin. My judging God, my blaming Him for the way in which things have worked out, this plan of salvation is the wrong question. Is there a right one? I believe there is. I want to spend the second half of the sermon looking at this question. Why does God provide salvation for rebellious mankind? I actually think that's the better question because it starts with me looking in the mirror and saying, I don't deserve salvation. I am flawed. I am broken. I cannot call God to account. I am too finite. What is his disposition towards a sinner like me? And that's why we have verses 22 and 23. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, had endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. The first thing I want to see, I have three observations about this question, why does God provide salvation? The first one is this, he is patient with vessels of wrath. Look at what it says there. These are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction again that's harsh language that is that is confrontational language that says that that we you and i as having sinned against god and rebelled against god we are identified as vessels for wrath prepared for destruction and and i want to ask the question who did the preparation work did god just decide arbitrarily before they happened that 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 i was going to be prepared for destruction i don't believe that would be a correct understanding of this passage What did God do when he created the world? He put Adam and Eve, our first parents, in a perfect garden. He put them in a perfect relationship with him. And he said, if you'll trust my character, nothing but good things will happen to you all of your days. If you believe that I am merciful and gracious to you, we're going to be good forever and ever and ever. And I've put you in a perfect world. And there's no such thing in this world as sickness and death and brokenness. They they, they didn't even have words for that to describe that. God put them literally in the garden of Eden. And what did our first parents do? At the first opportunity, they questioned the character of God through a conversation with Satan, and they rejected his lordship. And Eve took of the fruit and she ate it, and she gave it to her husband who was standing right next to her, and he ate it. And they said, God, we're done with you. We're not going to do it your way anymore. We're going to be our own gods. Who prepares you to be a vessel of destruction? Who prepares me to be a vessel of destruction? Our first parents did, but if you go down every generation since then, I'm the one who prepares me. I'm the one who sins against God. I'm the one who calls God's character into question. I'm the one who rebels against him. God doesn't have to prepare me. I prepare myself for his wrath, and he is right To call me out for who I am. The question back at the very beginning, how can God still find fault? All he has to do is look at my life. It's clear that there is fault, that there is brokenness, that there is sinfulness in my own life. It's our volitional disobedience. One of the problems with this passage of Scripture, I'm going to go down the side road for just a second, is that as Christians we can misuse this passage. If you're a disciple of Jesus here this morning, I think there's a danger of us to take a verse like this and and go to people who don't know Christ the Savior and say, look out, you're a vessel for destruction. (laughs) The wrath is coming. You better get your act together. And we use fear as a motivating factor to put people's faith in Christ. We think we're doing them a favor by identifying them, those guys over there, as vessels of destruction. I want you to go with me for just a minute to Ephesians chapter 2. Same author, Paul, inspired by the same Holy Spirit, is writing to some Christians in Ephesus about this idea of wrath. And he says this, and you, who are now believers in Jesus, right, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived. the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. All of us, apart from the saving grace of God, are vessels of wrath. I can't look at you and pass judgment without doing the same for myself. It is obvious and it is clear, it couldn't be more obvious and more clear, That apart from Jesus Christ, I am that very vessel prepared for destruction. And it is only because of God's patience and kindness with sinners like you and me that we have been found to receive mercy, which is the second point of why God provides salvation to rebellious mankind. Not only to show His patience, but also to demonstrate His character of mercy. In verse 23, we're identified as vessels... Of mercy, we're vessels in which mercy is now flowing. Why? Well, because like JB said a week ago, two weeks ago, God chose to love. God wasn't tricked. He didn't think that we were pretty good people. He knows that we're rebellious. He know, all those things that Paul said in in chapter five of Romans. Where did he get those from? He got those from God. The Holy Spirit inspired him with that. So God understands that we're weak, that we're ungodly, that we're sinful, that we're His enemies. But He responds in mercy. Salvation by God's grace is through his power and his character and not mine. I can't take credit for the mercy under which I am living. The glory goes to God. I've been out of town for about eight of the last 11 days. And uh, the last, my last stop on my trip, I was in New Orleans on Tuesday and Wednesday of this week. And I was at a board meeting of a ministry in which I, I serve on their board and the meeting was breaking up, and I have a, a good buddy who lives in New Orleans who's, uh, whose name is John Ketchatorian, and John uh, is a graduate of University of Illinois um, Engineering School, and John has made a, a fortune in building uh, equipment that builds oil platforms all over the world. He's in the oil business. And uh, this company is works with every oil producer all around the globe, and John goes all around the globe and is highly successful, and, and somehow God put us together, and we're having fun being on this board, and so uh, John has offices in New Orleans. He has offices in Houston. And he has offices in champaign Urbana Illinois, so we're walking out of the board meeting, and John says, you know, what time's your flight? So I'm leaving about 5 30. He goes, well, how about I, I got to go up to Champaign. Why don't I just drop you off in St. Louis? He wasn't talking about his car, right? He was talking about his nine-seat Chairs bigger than first-class chairs, plush, twin jet turbo, gigantic private plane. Right? Not like a little prop plane, but like, like movie stars flying. In fact, he owned this plane with Mike Ditka. But when Ditka got fired from the Saints, he called Johnny and said, "I can't afford the plane anymore. It's all yours." And hung up. So this is like, like, cool. <laughs> and so we go to the airport and. We go up to the gate in the back entrance of the airport, and it opens up, and we go through. And we drive up to, I'm Clarence, I'm as close to the plane getting out of the car as I am to you right now. I get out of the car, someone, oh, Dr. you leave those bags, get on the plane. Got on the plane, Close the door. Hey, you want to get a couple pictures up here in the cockpit? There were Cardinals fans who were the guys that were flying the plane, two guys flying the jet. And uh, we sit down in these big chairs, they bring us refreshments, and we fly for about an hour and 15 minutes, get to St. Louis, fly into Lambert, the far side of the airport over by Boeing where they got the private hangars. and we walk through the lobby. There's two really famous guys sitting in the lobby, and I, and I didn't, you'd be proud of me, I wanted to walk up and ask for autographs, and I thought, no, because people at Green Trail, they, they, they think I'm not enough already. So I left, got it, they put me in the courtesy van, took me to my car, got my car, was home by 7 o'clock. And I know what you're thinking, Tom, that's phenomenal, you're an incredible man. You're just an amazing person. <laughs> I'm so proud to be able to say I know you. I, 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 can we just bow down, right? <laughs> no. You're going, aren't you lucky that you had that friend? Yeah, that's exactly right. Aren't we fortunate that the God of the universe, what did we just sing a while ago? I'm a friend of God. Why? Because you did something special and great? No. Because he's merciful. I just happened to be in a place where a guy said, hey, let me drop you off, right? God says, you're in a place where I'm going to share my mercy with you, not because you deserve it, not because you earn it, because that's my character. That's who I am. I'm a God who saves. Why should God provide salvation for rebellious mankind? Because he is patient, because he is merciful, and because he wants to share his glory. Verse 23, he wants to share this glory with us for all of eternity. Verse 23 says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. You see, God isn't going to allow our rebellion to win the day. He showed his full wrath at the cross of Christ. Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve so that we could have the mercy of God instead of the justice of God. And it was granted to us as a result of that. And now God says, and now I'm going to show you even more and more and more of my glory. I was talking to Reed Sugg this morning. He was in the first service and they were walking out. His mom just passed away and we were talking about that because my dad passed away a couple years ago and his sister was with him and we were talking about Christians dying. We are talking about how cool that's going to be. Not necessarily the act of death itself, but when you open your eyes and you go, wow, there's Jesus. <laughs> how it's going to be the start of something that I can't even begin to explain to you. See, God doesn't just save us and then like, make us feel bad that he saved us, like, oh, you better appreciate it now. He goes, I'm going, to, I'm going to share everything I have with you. Whatever's mine is yours. My glory, I'm going to share my glory with you. That means all the stuff we think we know now that we don't know, we will. We'll be with him in perfect fellowship for all of eternity. That's the heart of a God who would die for a rebellious world. What do you do with that? What do I do with that truth? It's not just that it it ought to cause us to pause before we ask the question. I think there's a a deeper application. The first one is this. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you need to be. Not because you need to be scared. You're going to have to answer for your sin if Jesus doesn't. But I'm not going to try to scare you into following Christ. I want you to see the character of this God who has done all of this so that somebody like you and somebody like me can move from being vessels of wrath to being vessels of mercy by his divine plan of salvation. If you haven't put your trust in Christ, do it right this minute. If you don't know how to do that, I stand by this front door every Sunday. Come up here and talk to me afterwards. Our prayer team will be over there. Any number of us would love to lead you into a relationship with Christ and share that that journey with you. But I also think that for disciples, for those of us who call ourselves believers this morning, we really need a strong dose of humility. Look at at verse 24. Paul says this when when he's talking about all these incredible things that are going to happen. To whom? Even to us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. What I love about Paul is he doesn't ask you and me to look in the mirror if he isn't willing to do it himself. And so Paul goes, now who gets this? Man, even me. This is astounding. Even the guy who used to try to kill Christians and put them in prison, because of God's mercy, I've moved from being under his wrath to being under his grace. Hey, even I get this. If I get this, you'll get it too. And I love the fact that Paul's humility just shines through, not in a fake way, not in a superficial way, but in a real way. And, and Jeremy asked this question a couple weeks ago, three weeks ago, I guess, or two weeks ago. He said, what's the church known for? And I kind of started slinking down in my chair. And I'm like, dang, who gave him the right to ask that question? (laughs) You know, but he was right because that's the question. Is the church known for our graciousness? Is the church known for mercy like this? Is the church known for our compassion? Are we known for being arrogant and boastful and rude and not caring a whit about anybody else? I have some friends who started coming to Green Tree. I'm not even going to tell you who they are, and I, don't, and I don't want you to try and figure them out. They're not here. They were in the first service. I don't think they're believers. I'm not sure. But they started coming to church. I walked by them in the hallway this morning, and she's got three kids tagging along there, and I know she only has two. I'm like, wait a minute. What, what happened here? She goes, oh, these are, this is the daughter of my friend, and here, here he is, and his wife's in the bathroom with her other girl. We brought them with us. They've been at Green Tree for five weeks. I don't even know if they know the Lord, but they're, bringing, they're like, this is the greatest place in the world. Now, friends It's not green tree. It's the spirit of God. It's what we're reading and studying this morning that is stirring in that person's heart and soul. And we need to get off our high horse. And we need to exercise grace and humility and compassion and kindness for a lost and broken world because as Paul says, even us, even us, And thirdly, I think that leads to us taking on the character of Christ. Do we love in this way? Are we passionately concerned about the salvation of others and their growth in Christ? I believe the application for this is not just a thankful heart, but a thankful heart that turns into a serving heart that cares deeply for those around us. I want to go back to Ryan Snodgrass for a minute because I'm pretty sure that although he obstructed government operations, that that little 13-year-old couldn't have been happier to see anybody else in the whole world. I don't know if this is true or not, but I know if I were her dad and I found out he was in jail, I'd have gone and gotten $750 and gone and handed it to the sheriff, and then I would have said, I'm going to work against your reelection the next time. Right? I would have been awfully grateful that my daughter had been pulled from the river by that guy. I'm pretty sure she didn't blame him for saving her. But if you want somebody to blame for salvation, if you want someone to blame for unlimited love and mercy and forgiveness, then blame God. He's fully responsible for the compassion and grace that's poured out to us in Christ Jesus. And quite frankly, I'm glad that he's guilty of such love. Will you pray with me?